This episode of Asians Represent is brought to you by our amazing supporters at patreon.com slash aznsrepresent and the OneShot Podcast Network. Join our Discord community by heading to aznsrepresent.com. I'm gonna dive in. First thing, we got uh, a little bit of a little bit of news for Asians represent. A little bit of news. Um, I guess it's not really for for Asians represent. It's a little bit of news for me. Um, I uh, and it's related to this topic. Uh, I just uh, I got this in the mail. I got my silver any for my work on Haunted West. Oh, um, I am honestly super hyped. Uh, you know, we we've received two ennies in the past. This is my first one for writing. And I, um, this one's special actually, because, um, Chris Spivey was one of the first people to ever hire me for TTRPG work. And, uh, so this one really means a lot to me. Um, Congratulations. Chris was kind of like, what are those folks who, you know, gave me a shot, right? And now what I try to do is I try to pay it forward, um, you know, with, with our platform. Um, but that said, for this episode of Agents Represent, we're going to examine, I will say, and, and Stefan and Steve, you, you I'm, that's going to confuse me. That's going to trip me up. It's going to happen within these two hours. <laughs> that's all right. Um, if you disagree with this statement, I, I encourage you to step in. But I'm going to say that we're going to examine one of the most commodified aspects of Asian culture, and that's Kung Fu movies and their important influence on black empowerment. And in order for us to tell that story, we actually have to go back to 1973. Now, Kung Fu films have been around for a while. Uh, In Asia, there have been tons of martial arts films. But in the 1950s and 1960s, wuxia films were actually the really popular films in the Hong Kong action cinema industry. And it wasn't until the 1970s that they really took off. And this growth in Hong Kong action cinema as it relates to Kung Fu films coincides with Hong Kong's economic boom at the time. Um, And on a very special day of May 16th, 1973, this sort of Kung Fu craze that you see everywhere kind of just appeared out of nowhere. Now it didn't really appear out of nowhere, but on May 16th, Variety, which is a magazine at the time, <laughs> uh, reported that three movies, Fist of Fury, Deep Thrust, The Hand of Death, and Five Fingers of Death, the latter of which being the most significant in this conversation, Five Fingers of Death, were ranked one, two, and three respectively on Variety's top box office draws of that week. And this was the first time that three foreign films had ever occupied the top three slots. Now, this is also interesting because Five Fingers of Death had been at the top of this chart for the past seven weeks. Um, This was a monumental moment for foreign films in the United States of America. And because of that, and that year alone, coinciding again with this economic boom in Hong Kong, over 30 martial arts films were released in the U.S. um, by predominantly two studios, Shaw Brothers and Golden Harvest. And of these included... One of the most, I will, I'll, I'll say it, the most iconic and influential martial arts movie of all time, Enter the Dragon, uh, starring Bruce Lee, Jim Kelly, and John Saxon. 
And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Because while these uh, these films were, were called chop sake films, because they had those over-the-top stories, they had sort of like visceral violence, poor, often poor dubbing. Um, these movies had a huge impact across artistic genres and marginalized communities in North America, even after the death of Bruce Lee. And because of this craze, a lot of people kind of dove into why this happened and how this happened and the mechanism for the growth of Kung Fu cinema in the 1970s, the 1980s. And then we'll later talk about the 90s and 2000s because I want to talk about Wesley Snipes because I will talk about, I will talk about Blade any opportunity I could get because it's one of my favorite movies, one of my favorite characters of all time. Um, but film scholars note that the interest of the black community in Kung Fu cinema was that one of the major contributing factors to this craze. And so for this episode, Stefan and Steven, I said Steven, I tripped, tripped, tripped up already. I said Steven. I, n- I never say Steven. I say that, Steve. was, that was so um, weird. Like, uh, like, are you mad at me? Like, <laughs> I know. Like, what did I do? <laughs> I, I know. Um, I, I tripped up there. And um, I said I was going to do it once in the two hours, and it just happened within the first, like, 10 minutes. Get it out of the way. Um, I get it out of the way. Um, but what I wanted to talk about was, you know, for this episode was the nuances of why the black community was so attracted to kung fu films. Um, like, martial arts in general, beyond just, like, media, martial arts like, as a practice. Um, but I want to talk about that. I want to talk about why there was this strong visceral connection that is very much still a part of today's climate. Um, Later on, and I don't mean today, but on a later episode, we'll also talk about anime because that in and of itself uh, requires an entire episode to discuss these connections. But I think that this one is sort of like the foundational episode to understanding where this connection came from. Now, before we dive into this question of why there was this attraction to Kung Fu cinema from Hong Kong. We need to do an introduction. Our guest, <laughs> Stefan, who are you? I know you. I, yeah. uh, I think you're brilliant, but the audience needs to know all about you. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm Stefan Huddleston. Um, and you'll hear people call me Stefan too. And that's totally acceptable because the Cajun side of my family, the Creole side uses that pronunciation. So I, I answer to both. Um, but I am a um, a history uh, professor, and I teach primarily. I teach Sub-Saharan African history. I teach the histories of marginalized groups in uh, in America uh, from the beginning to now, um, and I teach pop culture and Asian history. So I do like things like African American cinema history. I do uh, TTRPG history. Um, and all of those fun sorts of things and all of the intersections and how, particularly how marginalized groups engage uh, not only in mainstream American culture, but in uh, pop culture, uh, both here and in um, Africa. And then some uh, also, uh, I do some uh, things with South Asia as well and um, uh, the cinema of um, South Asia, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, um, and all of that. So. Yeah, and I'm on Twitter always rambling about either political issues or game issues. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you are 
the most qualified person to handle this topic with us. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you say rambling, but literally every single time I've, I've read any of anything you've written, even if it's a throwaway, it was valuable. And when you when you put your like put effort into a Twitter thread or any other statement like that, I think people really should be listening because you like you said, you have the credentials, you've done the work and you're you're packaging it up in a way that I think is actually incredibly accessible to a wide wide audience and i have i have to gush a little bit here and say that i've learned a thing or two (laughs) just from your your work and uh you know thank you for everything you've done so far and the things you will do in the future thank you um you know uh, i will say that uh um i'm uh, it's so awesome and 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 so heartwarming to hear you say that because one of the goals i have is that for a very long time I think there's been uh, kind of an ivory tower positioning for academia, and I'm I'm amongst some uh, people in academia who are trying to tear that down because I think that a lot of the situations that we find ourselves in, be it misinformation over COVID, misinformation over history, misinformation over politics, and the way things have been done in the past, and reflect on things that are happening now. Um, has come back to bite us because uh, those of us who are in academia aren't sharing these things out in the public sphere um, as much as we should be. So to hear you say that, thank you. Thank you so much. Cause that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I mean, uh, to, to continue Steve's, this, this train of gushing over you and how awesome <laughs> you are. I, <laughs> sorry, it, one thing you get when you come out to Asians Represent is praise. Um, that's what they, everyone gets. It's guaranteed you come on the podcast. But um, yesterday, you, uh, after I, uh, I said to you the, so Steve, last night, I was supposed to be, if Tanya DePass and B. Dave Walters are watching this, I'm sorry. Um, last night, I was supposed to be working on Motherlands. <laughs> and <laughs> I just got really into just rewatching old movies and putting together the new graphic for this podcast. And last night at like, I think at like midnight here at Eastern, I said to, to use that on Twitter. And I was like, oh, I'm super hyped about this one. <laughs> and then you put out a Twitter thread. And your Twitter thread talked about you going to mm-hmm. those that Grindhouse Cinema. Yeah. The... the most accessible form of theater yeah. for a lot of marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. And I wanted, that was the first thing that I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Because it's an experience that I've never had. My Kung Fu film sort of experience was going to Blockbuster or if you're a Canadian, going to like Rogers and renting those VHSs. Yeah. It's like once a week, it would be one or two with my dad and we'd, we'd grab one or two movies and every single week it would be something different. Yeah. Like I'd go through phases, you know, like I've seen every single Jackie Chan film and it's like, let's start with Jackie Chan. Cause you know, of that age. And then let's go backwards. Um, let's watch the classics. Um, and then when I was, I gotta say, I think when I was in my, I think when I was 17, I watched shaft for the first time. And yeah. it changed my life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I dove into the black exploitation genre. And yeah. it I never realized how closely connected it was to Asian cinema until I became an adult. Yes. 
Um, because, you know, in my naive sort of understanding, it's like, oh, like their form is bad. Um, or like, why are they, why are they doing martial arts? Why, why is, um, why is Jim Kelly protecting a dojo from, from this, this like Italian mob boss? Right. Right. <laughs> um, but when I started to do research for this episode and when I read your Twitter thread, I realized that, you know, those movies exemplified the unity between our communities. Yes. And I see our communities really broadly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because this also counts a lot of marginalized communities in, you know, North America at the time. And your experience is just so different from mine, but I think we've come to the same sort of understanding that access to martial arts films. And when I say martial arts films, I mean Kung Fu films, because that's obviously the topic of this podcast Mm -hmm. is what kind of brought our communities together in many ways. Would you agree? Yeah, I I would totally agree. I think that we see, um, so, um, you know, historian me is it will will dive in here a little bit and and talk about how um you know in the obviously as these films were becoming popular in america um and really taking off in america we're like kind of at the tail end um of you know what is called the civil rights era and the you know all of the uh what was going on in the in the 60s and historians use this term called the long 60s where we talk about the period from roughly 1955 till about 1979, because you can't like cram all of that, everything that was going in the sixties, you can't just cram it into that like numerical decade. There's so many things like that lead into it and that come out of it. And so for, for, for African-Americans as they were going to protests and rallies and marches, they were encountering the same sorts of things that, protesters encounter today with police brutality and other things that were going on. But at that time, obviously there had been this kind of very long and ongoing conversation. And then the rise of like the black power movements with the black Panthers and things like that. And we were getting into this place where it was finally kind of open for us to kind of like push back and not have to um, passively take these things. And so many, um, African-Americans very quickly lashed on to, and not just, uh, not just here, but in, in, uh, you know, when I say African-Americans, I think black people in general in, in the West. So we, we even see some reflections of this in Canada, even, and in, uh, in your, in parts of Europe too, to some degree. And they are, uh, but here in America, definitely we see people gravitating towards the martial arts, not just in film, but in taking the martial arts. So in 1969, um, a man known as Grandmaster Steve Muhammad forms um, the Black Karate Federation. Um, We see a lot of black kung fu schools springing up, uh, particularly in San Francisco, uh, where we have, and and Los Angeles, the West Coast, where we have um, large Asian populations, large especially Chinese populations. And um, a lot of uh, black communities are kind of making this exchange and they're learning the martial arts as a way um, to push back, but also to kind of like defend themselves and kind of um, learn some techniques um, to kind of thwart, you know, uh, the the blows that will be coming their way. And uh, 
so this whole intersection of film and and the actual martial arts themselves just resonates just very quickly uh, as a symbol of empowerment to be able to uh, and I would I argue there's this long history of um, you know disarmament amongst uh, black communities right of being disarmed of not being disarmed I mean you know come on you know the National Rifle Association the one time that they um, support a gun control bill is when Reagan makes it illegal to carry guns in the open why because the Black Panthers are appearing armed in the streets um, and monitoring what police are doing in their neighborhoods and then they appear on the Capitol steps and say hey you have this Second Amendment thing. What about us too, right? And this is the this is the NRA coming out one time and saying, "Oh, wait a minute, gun control? Yeah, we need gun control." You know, all of a sudden, which because the the people are black, so there's this long, so this ideal of being able to defend yourself bodily without weapons to be able to um, do that thing just has a deep deep resonance in in black communities and. Um, and this is why this moment is so critical, like the intersection of coming out of those uh, the the civil rights movement and the, and the 60s and then these films becoming popular. It's kind of like a quote unquote perfect storm. Yeah, I think um, I, I think with, you know, you, you mentioned sort of Black Panthers, and the civil rights movement. And I think one of the things that. I think really ties a lot of the Kung Fu movies of the seventies and eighties together are those like core themes, right. Of resistance against oppression, right. In, in you know, in mm-hmm. Kung Fu films, it's often the Japanese, yes. you know, the, the colonial efforts of Japan and China, uh, you know, that defiance mm-hmm. against injustice, right. You see that in almost every Bruce Lee movie, self-improvement, the ability to train yourself, and then, of course, and we'll talk about like the Wu Tang Clan later, but themes of like honor, loyalty, and community. I think that the community part is super key. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, I think your Twitter thread really brings to light one thing about that. These movies were being made, they were being made in Asia. Yes. But the key thing there about Kung Fu films is that they were accessible. Yes. And I think it's really important to talk about the accessibility of them because I based on the, the, the metrics that I have for our listenership, I would suspect that a lot of folks who listen to this podcast have never heard of a grindhouse theater and what that actually is. Yeah. Means. Yeah. That's um, probably fair. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because you had these theaters i mean very famously on like 42nd street in manhattan um, but they were all over north america like mm-hmm. like your experience yes. because your experience is a grindhouse theater they're mm-hmm. inexpensive right they're accessible and they have programming that is just constantly running yes um, and that was really the key another thing that i think is that if you look at heroes at the time and this is where my expertise really lacks and i and i i sort of uh, we'll we'll do a handoff to you. Yeah. But if you look at cinema and like black cinema around the time of, you know, Bruce Lee, you see this like contrast. And this is potentially where I maybe don't have as good of an understanding of black exploitation. But you have the characters of black exploitation films, and then you have folks who embody sort of more heroic 
things like Sidney Poitier, mm-hmm. Richard Roundtree talked about how like one of my favorite records, not, not again, we said this before the recording, not the best movie, not the best sequel, better than, you know, Cleopatra 2. Right. <laughs> um, but like, but like Shaft's big score is one of my favorite films, Richard Roundtree, Shaft, mm-hmm. iconic black exploitation film. Yes. Um, but there's this sort of um, dichotomy between the types of characters portrayed in black cinema at the time. And because of the accessibility of Kung Fu films in the grindhouse theaters, you got to see a hero of color constantly yes. in the cinema. Is that correct? Yeah. No, I think that's uh, uh, completely accurate. You know, And for those who haven't seen the thread, you know, I was talking on Twitter about how as a kid uh, you know, in the late 1970s and into the early 1980s, um, I lived in, in Alhambra, California for a, a while and they're right down the street from where I lived, you know, uh, just off the corner of Garfield and, and Valley, there was a, a theater. And during that time, Alhambra was kind of transitioning. It had been predominantly, uh, overwhelmingly white community, and it was shifting heavily Asian at, the, at this period. And so one of the theaters, there were actually a couple, there was one further down Valley as well, um, that that uh, these theaters shifted. And, and this was at the time when um, the multiplex was just beginning to kind of uh, come into, uh, uh, into America. So we were starting to see where they were just beginning to build these larger, at the time I say larger, but I think the one they built by me was like eight screens, you know, in comparison to like the 20 screen or 30 screen monstrosities we yeah. have now. But the, most of the theaters at the time were one to three screens. Um, uh up until that point. And so these were, you know, these two places were little two screen um, houses and they changed uh, in that late seventies period to, like you said, the grindhouse format. And they focused both of them on specifically on Asian cinema um, and on the uh, weekends all day long. It was martial arts films just constantly running. And so you could go in, you could pay 50 cents and get, you know, get in and get a bucket of popcorn and just sit there all day long um, and watch martial arts films. And there were uh, certainly uh, some Saturdays or Sundays that I did exactly that. I would sit there for hours just watching wall to wall um, um, martial arts films. And, you know, it's important to understand, I think for people, that at that time frame, um, one of the things I talk about a lot is that for me, watching television, watching films, certainly I watched these films and I watched um, I watched uh, black exploitation films, but the majority of mainstream media, what we saw in television, what we saw in mainstream films, the heroes were white and and male almost overwhelmingly, you know, there were those exceptions like Ellen Ripley and things like that, but almost overwhelmingly white and male. And the, if there were any black people involved, they were the sidekicks, they were the thugs. Um, and it was a similar thing for, uh, for any people of any color. Um, and so it was very like green Hornet. Yeah. Like in green Hornet. Yeah. They were the side, even though Bruce Lee kind of steals the show there, he's the sidekick, right? Of course. Um, <laughs> yep. but, but we see that 
throughout all of our media, and and, and there are there are signals encoded into those things. So classic television shows like the A Team, you know, B. A. Baracus is the one who does all the physical labor. He's also the only non-commissioned uh, enlisted. He's the non-commissioned officer. He's the only non-com there, right? The others are officers, right? Um, you know, battle the original Battlestar Galactica. Boomer is like the sidekick, right? He's kind of like there's the loyal kind of friend who they call in for things like that. And you see that pattern throughout late seventies um, and early and and through the eighties television, right? Is that format of well, we're going to have one person of color on the team, and you know, we'll give them something to do. Uh, and so for me, um, even though I didn't realize it at the time. I internalized so much of that that heroes were white uh, because that's what I saw in most mainstream presentations. Even though I had these um, these other things like black exploitation films and uh, martial arts cinema, they were not part of the mainstream story that I was being fed, just like everyone else was being fed. And so they were cool and they were fun, but I didn't see them as at that time when I was younger as true heroes until much later, uh, just because I was so acculturated into this like American myth of, well, this is, this is these guys over here. These are the heroes, right? These other ones. Yeah. They're kind of cool presentations and stuff like that. And they're fun and they're amazing, but they're not, they're not the, the heroes, right? They're, they're heroes, but not the heroes. Can you, can you talk about, because we, we've mentioned black exploitation. Hey, first of all, can you, for the audience, describe, like, explain what black exploitation and just exploitation cinema in general? Yeah. Because black exploitation is just a genre, it's a subgenre of exploitation cinema. Absolutely. But I think one thing up, about black exploitation films is, is that they often also portray negative stereotypes. Um, can you kind of dive into that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, exploitation films in general. Uh, really come from this idea um, as American cinema, of course, people have heard that uh, American cinema for a very long time was uh, working under uh, the motion picture production code. And the motion picture production code gave these very strict rules about things that could and could not be done. So this is why um, as the code starts to disintegrate in the 1960s, um, it's a critical and kind of iconic moment when Sidney Poitier slaps a white man um, on screen in a major motion picture because that was unacceptable under the terms of the code up until then. Um, a lot of people don't realize that um, the Supreme Court had ruled in 1915 that uh, films were not did not have First Amendment rights, that they were commercial properties and they did not have First Amendment rights. And so when when films first started to come out, there were a lot of films that were early films that uh, in the pre-code era, full of nudity, full of these other things. And the studios create the production code as a self-regulation tool because they were afraid that the, that, uh, the government was going to come for them and uh, put governmental restrictions on them because they did not have First Amendment rights. They don't get those until like 1952. Um, and so... The, they put this code into place and it makes all these rules. You can't have, uh, you know, what was termed in the thing, miscegenation or interracial relationships. You can't have um, uh, uh, kisses that are longer than three seconds. There's all these very specific rules and things like that. But 
in the in the 50s and 60s films there were films that started to push back against this and play in these grindhouse type theaters these smaller houses where they were pushing back against these things and doing things whether it was nudity whether it was horror uh blood and gore and things like that that and they weren't films that were stamped by the code and basically people then began to quote unquote exploit these genres for money and produce these films um, for money that had a certain set of similar traits. So we have, you know, uh, gore exploitation and all these other types of films that are out there. And, and the black exploitation genre particularly plays on this ideal of films that are largely made by black creators with black casts um, as the leads um, that are going to um, play up on this new, these new ideas of black empowerment and black power and try to shift uh, some of the narratives that had been in American cinema about African-Americans. So African-Americans are now in black exploitation films. They're able to be the hero. Um, they are able to be uh, um, desirable, right? They are able to be sex symbols. Um, they are able uh, to kind of forward that ideal of black is beautiful and, um, and all of these other ideas that just weren't allowed up until this time. And, uh, yeah, there are a lot of stereotypes, I think, in black exploitation films. And I think what people need to understand most about black exploitation films is that most black exploitation films are also kind of, in a way, experimental films. Because these are the very first time that uh, black voices are being heard, not only as actors, but in many, many cases with black exploitation films as writers, as producers. And um, so they are doing things to, um, in some cases, challenge some stereotypes, but they are also kind of raised within and acculturated within American culture, right? And so some of those stereotypes um, that we see are are things that are things that uh, African-Americans had been raised to believe about themselves or to uh, do about themselves. And beyond that, there are some of these things that are um, stereotypes that are still, even though they're negative stereotypes, they're still common in African-American communities. And so they, uh, they will appear in these films. Um, but what we also see is this shift where African Americans are able to um, find their voice, and certainly as they do that, and I think this happens with any community, as they're beginning to find their voice in a particular medium, there are stumbles and there are triumphs, um, and um, sometimes it gets a little bit messy because um, everyone's trying things and saying, "What can we do?" Um, and there's a balance here; they're mimicking. Hollywood in some ways and trying to subvert and invert Hollywood in some ways. And, and that's something that you see globally um, in um, similar cinemas. You see this in um, Bantu cinema after the, um, uh, uh, the fall of apartheid or even before apartheid falls, you see it, you see it in, in, in South Africa, you see this in, in um, South Asian cinema Um before and after the British leave is you see these things where they're navigating um, 
the strains of colonialism. And there are those in the black power movement who argue that African-Americans are an internally colonized people. So part of what you're seeing in black exploitation cinema is them navigating um, the, the strains of colonialism. Oh, I never thought about black exploitation films as experimental. Um, but it makes sense, right? It, the, the accessibility of, of theaters at the time and the ability to make low budget pictures like that gave you a voice. Mm -hmm. and it only makes sense that you would experiment with said voice and try to do things like experiment with how you are meant, how white supremacy has making you think about yourself. Yes. Um, and how you can subvert that. Yes. And, Based on my research, and these also just happen to be films that I also really love, the black exploitation genre really like some say it hit its like it, the pinnacle of black exploitation is is you know Richard Roundtree's Shaft in nineteen seventy one in terms of like quality, not only in like the cinematography, the, the action, the script, the acting, yeah, the music, um. Like Shaft is one of the the most influential ones. Yes, but then I think what, in terms of our topic, when we talk about the intersection of the Black and Asian communities, Cleopatra Jones, which came out literally two months after, you know, the nexus of three Hong Kong films reaching the peak of the box office. Cleopatra Jones comes out like two months later. Yes, or just just under two months later, and you see a black woman who is essentially James Bond. Yeah. Um, using martial arts to fight against white people. Yeah. And I recently rewatched it. And by recently, I meant I watched it during my lunch today. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to sit down and watch Cleopatra Jones. It's a good lunch. And there was one, it was a great lunch. Um, I was like, I have a crush. Um, <laughs> um, but when I was watching it, there was one thing that I noticed, and I never noticed it before. Um, there are there's a group of characters, and they are originally working for the the villain or allied with the villain, mommy. They are these black characters mm -hmm. who are allied with mommy, and they break off from her. Uh, but that group of black characters, they have a a white European butler. <laughs> yeah, they have a white European butler who drives them around and. They mock his accent and the way he speaks and how he understands their world. Mm -hmm. And I did not realize that until today. And when I watched it, I was like, holy shit, this is like, this is huge. Yeah. Like, like to, to see something, I feel like the only time I've had an experience where I can feel like, holy shit, I've never seen that before is when... Glenn and Maggie kiss on The Walking Dead. They do more than kiss because they do more than kiss. <laughs> yeah. but like let's be honest. Uh, until until that point, to see uh, an Asian character and Asian and uh, like basically to 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 see an interracial relationship between an Asian man and a white woman is just like it's like unheard of on mainstream media. Yeah, right. So to see that, so that's that was my moment in The Walking Dead. Like, yeah, I was in the comic, but seeing it on TV was just yeah a completely different experience. So when doing research about 
you know, Cleopatra Jones and Shaft and seeing the how visceral that reaction was to the black community when those films came out. Mm-hmm. Like, I get it. Yeah. I, I get it. And they are incredible movies that take aspects of Asian culture, so the martial arts, and you could see the elements of the martial arts movies, not just the moves, but also, you know, the the way they interact with one another and the sort of the way honor is portrayed in those films. Mm-hmm. And you could see it, especially in Cleopatra Jones, because it is that moment when it's like Jim Kelly and Enter the Dragon, but it's just Jim Kelly. Yeah. I mean, he had Black Belt Jones, which is, in my opinion, an inferior movie to Cleopatra Jones. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that is the point when I'm like, oh, we've overlapped in media. Yes. We've truly overlapped in media um, in a way that Enter, Enter the Dragon was for the Chinese community. Cleopatra Jones was for the black community. Yeah. yeah. I th- and I think, in my opinion, it would have been cool to see an Asian character in there. But it's not necessary because it's not our story. Mm-hmm. Um but I just I think that movie is incredible. Um, I'm I'm right there with you. And <laughs> right there with you. <laughs> I, I think that I think that movie's great because they it is a really good example of how I think um, black cinema and black media has borrowed mm-hmm. from Asian media in a way that is appreciative. It's not appropriative. Yes. Yeah. And I think that really dives into, you know, a question that we have from one of our patrons, Jeremy. Shout out to Jeremy. Um, Jeremy asked, and Jeremy said, if there's time or interest, there is both time and interest for this question. Um, asked, I wouldn't mind hearing y'all touch on what you think of the Wu Tang clan, since they're a constant example that gets brought up on in internet discourse when people are accused of culturally appropriating Asian traditions. A lot of people say, but what about the Wu Tang clan? It's kind of tricky to talk about them, and it might not be entirely appropriate for this episode. Jeremy, I disagree. I think it's extremely appropriate for this episode Mm -hmm. um, because they've kind of built their image around Asian grindhouse cinema. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the... Um, the important thing here is that there's a lot of discussion going on on the internet and, and a lot of times what happens and what we see, uh, is we see strains of, uh, of some white paternalism kind of injecting themselves and coming across as like, Hey, wait a minute, but what about this over here? Um, and, uh, I, I sent out a tweet about it the other day about, you know, trusting that, uh, that, uh, uh, BIPOC um, creators can handle their stuff. And if they're creating something, you just need to trust them that, yeah, if they want to say that I want to have this white artist do some art that's African inspired, trust that the, that the, you know, the people who called on them to do that, who are part of the community they're asking them to do the art for know what they're doing. And, 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 and you don't need to try and inject and say, Oh, that's appropriation. And I think that a little bit of that is what happens with the Wu-Tang clan a lot um because what you have there is uh not appropriation um i i teach on appropriation a lot i talk about appropriation a lot and that is not it that is cultural exchange um which is a whole different animal and there is a deep respect within what the wu king clan are doing for asian culture and for 
uh, martial arts films in particular and the genre and what that genre means and does uh, for black communities. Um, that's, you know, the root of what the, um, the Wu-Tang Clan has always done um, from the get-go. And that's, um, and, and, and you can see that beyond, and I think one of the important distinctions here is it's not just them using it, um, using those as a commercial enterprise, but they are also out there, um, particularly um, before the stream, Daniel mentioned RZA going out and supporting and, and the, the Asian community, right? Um, there is um, there is a respect there and, and an aid there that goes both ways, I think, um, that kind of moves it out of appropriation. You know, appropriation is really this idea where either A, you are laying claim to something that you did not create and calling it yours, um, as opposed to um, having a respect for and sharing um, things within. And that's, you know, that's what we want is we want people to uh, celebrate our heritage, to celebrate our cultures, right? Um, part of the... Uh, um, the post, the tweet that I sent out was that, uh, you know, those for those who know the um, role playing game Coyote and Crow, um, Connor Alexander has put out multiple messages where he's like, look, I keep having people saying, well, I don't want to I don't want to play this game because that's for you. And he's all, no, we're sharing this game with the world. We're sharing these ideas with the world. That's what we want people to play this. Right. We give some things and some suggestions for not how not to be appropriative. But we want you to play this. We want to share this. And that idea, I think, applies um, in what's going on with the Wu-Tang Clan. This is an exchange and a, and a sharing of cultures, not appropriation. Yeah, I think power is a uh, is a key dynamic there. Yes. Right? I think a lot of people, specifically with, with RPGs, see when they say, oh, this is an Asian setting or this is um, – like this is a, I, I work on motherlands. This is an Afrofuturist sort of setting. A lot of people see that and they immediately say, oh, this is a barrier to me participating. Yeah. And, and that's not what that, and that's what you're saying. It's not a barrier. It is an invitation to learn. Yes. 100%. Right. It is an invitation to learn. And for, for me, I had an experience with that actually on a project that I'm working on and I wanted to write an Asian faction in this, in this being super vague, I wanted to write an Asian faction and somebody at the project said, well, can we change it so that, yeah, it's coded Asian, but you don't have to be Asian to, to be in this faction. Mm. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> um, and normally you shouldn't push back to somebody like that, but I was like, I'm going to push back. Um, and I said, absolutely not because Within the lore that I wrote, a core theme here is a theme of resistance, a theme of being isolated within this vague setting that I can't talk about, um, this theme of being isolated. So if you want to make non-Asian consumers of this product comfortable by saying you don't have to be Asian to be in the Asian faction, I strongly disagree um, mm -hmm. because this is, again an invitation to learn the you can't bring in people by 
not having these sort of guidelines. Yes. Right? These guidelines exist for a reason, right? Coyote and Crow, the entire game is a guideline into exploring these cultures. Like Haunted West, Harlem Unbound. Yes. These are all guidelines on how to try to tell these stories and learn about these different perspectives. And the Wu-Tang Clan, to circle back to the original question, they always acknowledge the roots, their origins. They always acknowledge the theater. They always acknowledge the fact that, hey, we were inspired by this cinema. We were inspired by the stories that they tell. The fact that, hey, I mean, the, the really famous one is, hey, you know, our style beats your style. Except it's not martial arts, it's music. And that's why I completely agree with you. Now, I've got a question, and this is one that I've often struggled with. Steve, I don't know if you've, or, or both of you actually, I don't know if you've seen this movie. Although, Stefan, because you're a scholar on this, I, I would assume that you've seen this. Steve, have you seen the film Ghost Dog? Ghost Dog. I can say I've never seen Ghost Dog. What is Ghost yes. Dog? Okay. So just look up Ghost Dog. Yeah. Um, Ghost Dog is, it is a, a very important film to this conversation. Yes. Because it is a part of this progression after the era of, you know, uh, Jim Kelly's peak and, mm-hmm. um, you know, Cleopatra Jones and after the end of sort of that black exploitation era, because we could say that sort of black exploitation films kind of had this marked ending when, you know, the sequel to Black Bell Jones, Hot Potato, was not a black exploitation film. It was just a true Hollywood action movie. Yes. Um, but uh, Ghost Dog is sits in this kind of era that I want to discuss, and it's that same era as you know Wu Tang when they released Enter the Wu Tang in 1993. In 1999, this movie called Ghost Dog came out, and if you took and I will say this, if you took the poster for Ghost Dog and you just made that the cover to a uh, a TTRPG, Twitter would be on fire. Mm-hmm. There is a TTRPG, by the way. What? Yeah, there's a Ghost Dog TTRPG. It exists. <laughs> what? Yeah. What? Yeah. And Ghost Dog is a really good movie, but you really need to understand its roots in order to appreciate yes, it. Yes, you do. And I think it's the same thing for uh, movies like Black Dynamite in 2009. Uh, and it's the same thing for a really good movie that I, I think very few people have seen called The Last Dragon. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Because if you look at the... See, I see Steve looking it up. If you look at The Last Dragon, you're like, is this like a like a parody? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But The Last Dragon and Ghost Dog are, I mean, they're over a decade apart, separated. Yes. But they are deeply influenced by that kung fu craze and black exploitation era. Yes. Um, and what I think is really c- cool about Ghost Dog is that Ghost Dog was inspired by a French movie called Le Samurai. Yes which subsequently was also the inspiration for one of my favorite movies, The Killer. Mm-hmm. I love John Woo movies. And Le Samurai basically was the inspiration for The Killer and Ghost Dog. And if you put them side by side, they just look so different, yet they're so similar. Um, I love The Killer. Uh, of the two, I think The Killer is more accessible than Ghost Dog. Um, yes, I think the killer has got to be on some streaming services. I don't know about Ghost Dog. 
It might be. Not a, Maybe. Not 100% sure, but it, they are both movies worth looking at. Yes. Uh, in terms of this conversation, don't worry about the killer. Go look up Ghost Dog. Uh, but, like, Ghost Dog is really interesting when you compare it to Blade, which came out a year before. Yes. And I think people really sleep on Blade. Like, not, not as, like, a character, but the fact that, like, literally everything that we enjoy now, the all of the MCU, all of that shit, would not exist if not for that Blade movie. Yeah. If not for Wesley Snipes. Absolutely. Yeah. I- it's... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think you're, I think you're, you touch on something very, very important because like you said, the black exploitation genre kind of ends, but it doesn't end this association and this kind of connection, right? Between, um, um, black and Asian culture. So, uh, the last dragon, um, even features a scene, uh, in, uh, you know, one of the iconic scenes in the film where, uh, you have, uh, a, a group of, um, a large group of African-Americans in a grindhouse theater watching enter the dragon. Um, and they are like sitting there, like reciting the lines along with the film, right? Like, obviously these are people who like me have watched these films many, many times, right? They've been sitting there probably watching this film every Saturday, you know? Um, and that, you know, is obviously a callback to, you know, this, this connection, right? And then the whole film uh, in and of itself is this uh, um, like tribute to uh, kind of the strength that the African-American community gained through martial arts. And that's like, I mean, the, that's the main plot of the film, right? That, um, that brings these, uh, uh, these two, these things together, right? That brings Asian culture through the martial arts and just in general together. Um, and you see uh, again, this connection, this deep respect, um, uh, that is married there. And then in ghost dog, like you said, it's a film where you really have to understand the roots of, um, um, Asian cinema, particularly, um, for that film to go back even a little bit further and go back to the samurai epic, um, and understand, um, um, the roots of those, because, um, one of the things that began to happen with, um, with these cinemas is in African-American communities. Of course, we, we saw all the Shaw brothers films and golden harvest films and all these other things. And many in these communities then started to look deeper, to dig deeper, to go into other forms of Asian cinema and Asian culture in general, and kind of start digging and saying, Oh, what else can I find? Right. And so, uh, that was how I discovered, you know, Akira Kurosawa, um, and, um, and his great films, and, and then the spaghetti westerns that inspired that, and the spaghetti westerns, right? And and there's this great like exchange there, right? So we see, you know, as for those who don't know that, you know, the Seven Samurai and the Magnificent Seven and the Great Western are the same film, right? There's just one that is set in the American West and one that's set in uh, and then Star Band. Wars is those two films. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you have you have you know, and then uh, what was what is it for uh, for a fistful of dollars is Yojimbo, and there's like all of these um, these connections between that in the in the spaghetti western, uh, and then you know from there I just kind of branched out, and I think that happened with a lot of 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 um, black people in 
in this era. We just started to look for more and, and found. So I discover films like Ugetsu, which if if you have not seen the movie Ugetsu, anyone out there, man, I don't know if I've seen what a movie. movie. Oh, I it is probably my favorite uh, Japanese film. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal movie. Um, I'm going to try to hunt that down. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. Um, you can, you might. I don't know if it's still on there, but it was on HBO Max um, not too long ago. Um, there is, a, there is a lot of. I mean, there we could do a whole episode about sort of reinterpretations of white media by marginalized people. Oh gosh, yeah, right? we could. because because if we're going to talk about Kurosawa and spaghetti westerns. We could also talk about Kurosawa and Shakespeare because of Ran. Oh, absolutely. Because Ran, Ran is just King Lear, but yeah, Throne of Blood, Japanese historical epic. Yeah, yeah Throne exactly. of Blood, like all of those, absolutely. And and so it, it's there are a lot of really interesting connections there. Yeah, and how you find your way to those things is interesting because, like, I you know you know what I didn't know about the Last Dragon until maybe like eight years ago. Okay, yeah. And you know, is it eight years? I'm I'm gonna I want to make sure I, I get this this timing. Yeah, one second. No, that's fair. Um, so I first learned about the Last Dragon. Yeah, about eight years yeah. ago. Um, maybe over eight years ago, actually. Um, yeah, just about eight years. So I learned about the Last Dragon because I'm I'm a huge martial arts fan, and I really love MMA. Okay, I watch mm-hmm. every single UFC card. I watch won championships. I watch it all. Um, and um, there is a fighter. His name is Alex Caceres. And his nickname, his fighter nickname is Bruce Leroy. <laughs> there it is. And I was like, what is that? And I looked it up and it was like, oh my God, there's a, it's just from a movie. Um, and that's how I learned about The Last Dragon. Yeah. Because of someone's homage to a film that is an homage to Kung Fu and Black Exploitation Center. <laughs> that's beautiful. And again, there, there, there are these layers. Um, and like Ghost Dog is a really interesting one because it's again mm. uh, a movie that is inspired by you know like a white European film, yes, uh, which has also inspired a Chinese film, like a Hong Kong action cinema film by John Woo, yeah. the Killer. But then there's like ones that are like, in my opinion, a very obvious callback to the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and to circle back, and for me, it's Blade. Yes, right. Blade is truly a callback to black exploitation films. Yes, and the martial arts movies that inspired it. Yeah, because of his origins, right? He had those really humble origins. Um, they kind of touch on those common portrayals of of black Americans yes. in movies, especially in the nineties. But then he's a superhero. Mm-hmm. He 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 is a he is a superhero, the first big Marvel superhero to ever be made into a good film. Yeah, I will say good film because there were movies beforehand. Dolph Lundgren played the Punisher, and oh, yeah, God, David Hasselhoff as Nick Fury. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's bad. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Wesley Snipes as Blade was incredible. And if you watch black exploitation films and watch kung fu cinema, you see them in Blade. Yes. yes. And that is my biggest concern, actually, with the upcoming Blade movie, because I worry that it won't have those callbacks. 
very similar to Blade's origins as a comic book character. Yes. Blade's origins as a comic book character were a direct result of black exploitation media. 100%. And, mm-hmm. you know, kung fu film. And I and I feel like that is going to be lost. Also because they said that the new Blade movie is going to be PG-13, which I think is a travesty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ditto. Because, because it being PG-13 also goes against that kung fu craze and the black exploitation media because they are they are ultraviolet. Yeah, there, there's a grittiness and a, and a rawness to all of those films that, again, I think was coming out as an expression of what these films were trying to accomplish. Right. And and, and um, many of them are filled with nudity because uh, for the the length and breadth of American cinema, um, it was not allowed to see black bodies as sexy. You know, it was just not allowed. They weren't they they could not be sex symbols um, in 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 mainstream film with very few exceptions. And um, and so, again, a lot of these films are pushing this envelope and saying, hey, what can we get get away with? What can we demonstrate? Uh, You know, of course, a notable exception uh, to the nudity uh, is um, Cleopatra Jones. Which is a film I yeah, also there was no nudity loved. in that movie. Yeah, Tamara Dobson, uh, who, who by the way, uh, you know, is over six feet tall and she's amazing as Cleopatra Jones. That car is so awesome. yeah. Her 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 Corvette is phenomenal. It's a, it's a Corvette Stingray, I think. Corvette Stingray, like yeah, that. and she's got like weapons oh, hidden cool. hidden in the doors and stuff like that. Like like you said, James Bond style. But she, you know, she refused to do nudity, but. She still has these moments where, you know, by today's standards, people would decry this scene where she's like walking down the street and people are like whistling at her and catcalling her and that sort of thing. But like it was so significant at that time because we're coming out of a time frame where um, um, black women could not be uh, objects of desire except for – in this weird kind of Jezebel archetype where they were like fetishized by white men in, in, in a lot of films and things like that. Um, And so uh, that movie is just, and and not to mention the fact that, like you said, she's a government agent, she's a federal agent. And it's probably one of the first times I can remember going to a film and um, she, you know, there's these, this great scene where she goes in and um, she comes back and she, um, she's mad about what's been going on, kind of the central story of the plot that I won't ruin for anyone who's, who hasn't seen it. Uh, but there's this great scene where she calls like this, the white police captain, who's kind of her ally um, in the Los Angeles police force. And there's like, he, he, he knows she's mad about what's going on. And there's this visible fear in his face. And he's like, does she know I'm here? Can You know, like he's trying to get out of like talking to her. And um, and then later on, there's a scene where she tells him, look, my jurisdiction runs from Watts Towers to Anchor Turkey, like, you know, and and those are some moments that are so amazing, particularly at that time where here's this white police captain who's deferring to a black woman in the in the early what, 1970s. Or when she takes out those assassins at the airport and she just flashes her badge and then walks away. Yeah, and the cops are like, just kind of standing there. up after me. They're kind of like, uh, okay, what, what, what just happened? Yeah, those moments like are so small, but also so huge because, um, you know, they, they put forward this ideal of the power of this strong black woman, right? Who's not going to take anybody's mess, not even these white cops, right? And, you know, that's a message that resonates today let alone 1973, 
you know, phenomenal, uh, just such an amazing film. But I think like these through threads that go through to um, like Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, um, through Last Dragon, through Blade, um, it shows this like this like line that continues through um, even unto today. And, and I hope I have the same fears as you do, but I, man, I, I have this hope in your mind that, that that will be wrong about the new blade. Um, <laughs> you know, like fingers crossed. Um, but there are these, um, these great connections and you even see little nods to them and other things. There's kind of the, the great, uh, moment in, um, uh, black Panther where they go to Korea. Um, and, um, mm-hmm. There's kind of the exchange before they go uh, into the Korean nightclub um, that kind of lets you know that Nikki has been here before, that she's um, had these interactions here before. And, and um, so you see these connections, I think, in a lot of other films as well, um, in a way, because it is kind of something that even though um, we see this kind of peak in the 1970s, we still see these homages that go back to it, uh, even in films like Black Dynamite and things like that, which um, does this. Yeah, it's this amazing, uh, uh, again, like parody, but at the same time, homage of the black exploitation genre. And again, brings in all of those aspects of the martial arts and things like that. And and, and yeah, uh, I love that film. And I love that um, that those connections and exchanges are continuing um, in movies to this day. Yeah. I mean, if we're first of all, if we're going to bring up black dynamite and I, we've gushed about Wesley Snipes and blade. We have to talk about Michael Jai white. Yes. Michael Jai white is super significant to sort of like modern media because he is the first black American to play a superhero. He is spawn. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And people, people forget about that. People, you know, people, and I mean, like, there's this younger generation, and they'll look and they'll see Black Panther, and Black Panther is an incredible movie. Yes. Um, but they forget about Spawn and Blade. Yeah, those foundations. And how important they are. Mm-hmm, those foundations. Right? Because Blade, if Blade wasn't a hit, Marvel would not be making movies yes. today. 100%. Blade alone is the reason why. And, you know, and then Michael Jai White continues that sort of tradition outside of you know black dynamite which is like a literal homage to black exploitation he continues that trend of being this martial arts star yes in all of the movies that he does um i mean there are a lot of directed dvd stuff but they are good mm-hmm. and he is an excellent excellent martial artist he is he's legit he is yeah um and i don't think he gets enough credit now i've i've been in coming up with like a list of movies to talk about there were two that I was kind of stuck on. Okay. And I wasn't sure where they would fit. Yeah. Um, the first one is The Matrix. Yeah. Okay. Um, with Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah. Uh, the second one is Rush Hour. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Rush Hour from the perspective of Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker being just like a dynamic duo. Yes. Because I love the Rush Hour movies. Yeah. But also Don Cheadle. In Rush Hour, yeah. Don Cheadle's cameo. Oh my in gosh! Rush Hour Two. I love Rush Hour Two. Love that scene <laughs> because because that scene and that character is referenced now by Kendrick Lamar. Mm-hmm. Um, but but for me, I was always like thinking, I was like, yeah, that scene in Rush Hour. I think it's Rush Hour Two. I'm, fa- yeah, it's Rush it Hour. I, I'm yeah, I'm pretty sure you're right. Pretty sure it's a Rush Hour Two. Um, 
But that scene alone for me is like, oh, that is the nod to the 70s and 80s. Yes. The fact that you have this black guy who owns a Chinese restaurant and trains in Kung Fu and is is equal to the Asian character. Yes. Uh, and you have Chris Tucker being the foil to to the three of them. Yes, um, that one's that scene speaks to me on many levels because I've been I've been gearing this up. So I've recently found a lot of old pictures of my grandpa uh, when he first came to Canada, and so that's my grandpa, that's D- Danny Moon when he first came to Canada, and he owned a lot of different restaurants and he was like a martial artist. And uh, he was a part of those dojos where there are a lot of black people mm-hmm. and he opened up a lot of restaurants. He was a, he was a, a serial restaurateur and he opened some of the earliest Chinese restaurants in Toronto. So there's a, there's Danny's restaurant. And I actually have a, a picture of my, my mother working at the restaurant as a kid. Um, and that that's my my mother and her brother. My mother's the one um uh that's my mother right there working at the counter. And you can't see it on the um on the menu, but my mom told me about this. They served a lot of food that they felt would resonate with the black community. So they made Chinese food and then they also made fried chicken, which you see a lot of at older Chinese restaurants yeah. during mm-hmm. The 60s, 70s, 80s, and like onwards. Still, even like, today, sometimes you'll always find it. You'll always find it at a Chinese yes. restaurant. Um, and I thought that was just so interesting when they did that with Don Cheadle, except it was the reverse. Yes. Yeah. Except it was the reverse. Mm-hmm. Um, when I thought that was smart. But for me, the dynamic between Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan kind of falls more into uh, the hot potato sort of representation than black belt jones i don't would you agree or disagree this is where i'm kind of stuck yeah you know i think the the um the rush hour films kind of take the standard buddy cop formula um and they then bring together this intersection of black and asian culture together um and that and that scene with don Cheadle, which i love so much um is kind of like the, culm- the the true culmination of that uh um like bringing together uh, of these two things and, and shows this kind of um this intersection of these cultures and things like that but i know i would think that that is a fair assessment um that you're making um yeah i would agree with that 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 uh this is kind of a shift i think to uh because rush hour um is a very uh like mainstream film um and i think it went a long way uh significantly to kind of introduce the um the connections between these two cultures probably to a lot of people at that time who weren't aware that they existed um and and some of them i know for a, a fact point. i some of them i know for a fact probably thought appropriation with the Don Cheadle scene and thought appropriation in some other scenes in the films. But in reality, if they took the time to dig deeper, um, they would find that, that again, this is an homage to these uh, connections. So I actually think rush hour two is the superior film when it comes to kind of what they're trying to do with it. Mm -hmm. Rush hour one struggles a lot. And of course we can't talk about rush hour talking about the, the infamous scene where Jackie Chan 
Um's character is in the bar at the pool hall and drops an N-word. Oh yeah. And you know, yes. that was a very like interesting formative time for a lot of the kids that were out there watching this. Cause it's 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 a kids movie, right? Kind yeah, of yeah, sort of. Yeah, absolutely. Ish. Kind of sort of. Yeah. And what you yeah. see here is you see like this man who's been shown to be like an international super cop, right? Like he's like super, super competent and knows all this kind of stuff. Uh obviously a martial arts master at this point. And does it so casually and just like can feign ignorance afterwards, showing that even if you are like very powerful and you're like in the position of power, you can always just feign that ignorance here. And and now that we're older and we can look back on that, there's no way like an international cop knows that this is okay. Right? There's no way this this could have possibly happened. I I, uh, I know it's I, I think that uh, I don't think that Inspector Lee is framed as like an he's not portrayed as an international cop. This is like clearly he's going overseas because of the counselor. Um because okay. he's not an Interpol agent. He's a he's a Hong Kong police That's officer. True. Um so for me, I think I think that particular joke, while crude, is their attempt, a very extreme attempt to show that he is a foreign foreigner. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it's a very generous take on it. I think it's a very generous yeah. take, but that I, it's a very, I mean, obviously the scene does not hold up. It is not a good yeah. scene, mm-hmm. but I think, I think if you kind of like try to like astral project to the writing sure. room, it's like, is that what they were trying to do? Yeah. I don't know. Ste- Stefan, what do you no, think? I, I think I'm kind of somewhere in the middle between where, uh, where, where both of you are. I'm kind of like in the middle there. And I, and I think, yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that that's exactly what they were trying to do. But, uh, but yeah, it does fall so flat. Uh, and There's intent and, and execution. Yes, there is. Yeah, 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 absolutely. 100%. And I, Steve said in execution, I said intent. Yeah. And I think that it's interesting because that, um, uh, that word in particular is one of those words that, um, if it ever gets said in my presence, um, regardless of who said it, if there are any white people in the room, I'm always looking at their reactions. That's my first thing. Cause I want to see what the white people are doing when that word is said, um, because their reactions are the most fascinating thing to me when that word actually gets said out in the open. Uh, because there's like this just amazing array of like, um, most of the time, this amazing array of like shock and not knowing what to do. It is the most like, uh, incredible spread of deer in the headlights looks <laughs> you like mm. you like ever see. Um, and so uh, I did exactly that when I went to go see this movie in the theater. I'm kind of looking around at like the people in the theater when I went to go see that movie, <laughs> when it, when that happened um, in that scene. Um, and so, yeah, I think it, it, uh, it is, it, I, I, like I said, I think I'm kind of in the middle between uh, 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 where you guys are. I, I think both of, both of those are, it's, it's one of those times where both of those things are simultaneously valid. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, like we're going to get different perspectives. Yeah. On this. Like I, I think Steve, you're right. I'm, I'm being super generous. Yeah, and, um, and I also might be like very hurt by that scene and hurt by like how, as a very young person looking at that scene, how that, colored my view of that word because I had looked up at Jackie Chan as this idol and seeing a hero of yours say that word so casually multiple times in a row as a joke it it, it really affected how I began to engage I know that there and this is not a defense of that because you're absolutely right I know that 
one of the things Jackie has said in interviews since is that he didn't actually like the Rush Hour movies because he didn't understand them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I, 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 it's very clear that he doesn't understand. I, I mean, he should. He's a, he's a grown ass man. I, 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 um, I certainly know um, that Jackie Chan is, is, is one of those, even though he's had some success in the United States, um, he is certainly not um, as a party uh, to American culture. Mm-hmm. And um, there are certain strains and portrayals of uh, of people of color in of, of black people specifically in Asia that um, I think it would be fair to say um, from what I know of Jackie Chan that he probably got a little bit taken advantage of there because I don't know. I think it might be fair to say that he may not have known the impact of that word when he was saying it. I think uh, that's fair. pretty fair. Yeah. 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 I know. think that's fair. I mean, his, his English wasn't that, it wasn't that great at the time. Either, yeah. Right? yeah. No, he was still, and he was still. He, yeah. And he which was, he was kind joke. of, that was the kind of character. Yeah. I mean, which, which, and that was kind of the character that he was playing, right? Cause he, he was intent. If you look at all of his movies, Jackie Chan is intentionally trying not to be Bruce Lee. Mm-hmm. Yes, he is literally the opposite of Bruce Lee in every way: how yeah. he moves, how he acts, the types of characters yep. he plays. Right, and um, yeah, I, I think that's I think that's interesting. To now say the, that he was taking advantage. Now the writers darn well knew, right? The writers no, they, darn well knew. knew. But I, I I don't know that Jackie Chan fully did because. Uh, um, um, there's plenty of points where you can um, see um, through his films, through his interviews and things like that, uh, where he does not fully understand um, some of the deeper nuances of Western culture. And I, to me, that comes across as one of those uh, uh, particular moments. And I would put the lion's share of the blame on the writers in that scene that, that kind of maneuvered him into, uh, into doing that. Um, I think if, uh, uh, I don't know that he would have done it if he'd realized. <laughs> and I mean, you could tell that they tried to do the joke again in Rush Hour 2. Yes. But with Chris Tucker trying to speak Chinese. Yeah. Yes. Yes, they did. Yeah, they Right. Mm-hmm. And then they didn't do that in Rush Hour. I guess they they both tried to. No, actually, they did the same joke again in Rush Hour 3 at the dojo. Yes. When the whole I am you. I am, oh, I am you yeah. Me, yes, they did. Yeah. That whole thing. Yes. Um, I mean, Rush Hour 3 was not. I was going to say, how do you remember anything from that movie? That movie is a a, a hot blur for me. There was one, one, like, really wild scene to me, and it's when Jackie and Chris sing um, uh, Luther Vandross. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they sing Luther Vandross. Yes. And um, I I thought that was funny. But yeah, Rush Hour 3 sucked. The TV show was fucking awful oh, yes um if you if you folks ever watch the, the rush hour tv show rough god it's bad rough. it's it's real bad but jackie chan hasn't done a movie like that and he hasn't done a movie like that again um and i think if you were to do rush hour four how would you do it like what would you do for rush hour four like i don't know what story you would tell right like they're both significantly older now and from like a political perspective, I don't know if Jackie would do that because he himself as an individual has changed significantly mm-hmm. since the original Rush Hour because Jackie used to be pro Hong Kong. 
And now he's completely flip-flopped yes. in his politics. He has, yeah. Um, so I don't think he would actually do Rush Hour again. I don't think he would. And, and I don't know. I, I don't think it would happen. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, um, obviously, right now, for those who who uh, uh, are tracking such things, um, actors like Jackie Chan need to be really, really careful about Western projects right now because there's a, uh, there's a massive, massive backlash uh, from the Chinese government, from those who are 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 appear in any way pro Western right now. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, th- I think what's important is to this is like a half gripe, but half like thing to add on this conversation is that every movie we've talked about exists in a very specific time frame with very specific context going on politically, and that is why they are so powerful, right? Like all yes. we've talked about. Things are happening, and it's a direct commentary to the climate that is going on at that time. So when people say things like, oh, you can ne- you can never make Blazing Saddles again. You can never make Rush Hour again, blah, blah, blah. Well, of course it can't. That's how time works. Like, we have yeah. to continue to progress. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. When, it, when it comes like, oh, yeah, what would you like to see from Rush Hour 4? I would say I don't want to see Rush Hour 4. What I want to see is a, um, a Black and an Asian lead talking about the current... Uh, relationships between those communities in relation to in relation to like white supremacy in whatever geographical place they happen to be in America, Canada, wherever it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's my rush hour. Like that's what it was when I boil it down to like what, you know, that, mm, that piece of it. I mean, they, they, they made a movie like that. Um, uh, uh, shit. Um, while, while you look at just a quick gush, uh, best part of rush hour two, Opening scenes in their bathrobes, Chris Tucker, Jackie Chan doing some like combo moves. Um, oh yeah, at the at the massage. And I just parlor. wanted to gush that out because not nearly enough Asian and Black leads having like this kind of like cooperative kind of like time. Like ha- like it's a very joyful scene in my opinion. Uh, another another thing about Rush Hour is that you don't see is that the Asian lead is seen as desirable by non-Asian. I mean, that's yes. your anti-Bruce Lee, I, in my opinion. That's your anti-Bruce Lee. Like so I remember the movie. I had to look it up. Another one that I think, again, everyone slept on, but everyone knows that I, I love Justin Chan, um, is a movie called Gook. Oh my gosh, that is an amazing movie. Right? And then, and then Gook and then Blue Bayou. Because I, I talked about Blue Bayou a lot on another podcast oh. episode. But I think Gook is, it's not a comedy, but Gook is a drama. <laughs> it's a drama about the LA riots. Both both of those um, movies are. That guy is an amazing filmmaker. Both of those are spectacular. He, he is, and, and he, I don't think he gets credit for everybody. Just is like, oh, he's Eric from Twilight, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. Right. He's just he's from Twilight. Um, but yeah, I think I think Gook is a really good example of the kind of story that we'd want to see because for me. Mm-hmm. You know, when we when you look at current representation in in terms of like what is some might say like, you know, Black Panther is what Blade was and Blade is what, you know, like um like Cleopatra Jones was, mm-hmm. was what Black Black Belt Jones was what was all that. For for me when I look at this, and this is my biggest gripe, is that the Asian community still didn't really get that. Shang-Chi is not, is not my Black Panther. Yeah. And I'm so bummed about that, man. I can't even tell you. Like, it's, it's not my Black Panther because it's just another Kung Fu movie, but not in the, 
yeah in the subversive way that it should have been yes i think right because that's it right he, there that subversive the part. story it the, you can't say oh well you know we played down on the stereotype where he's kind of like that slacker asian always be my maybe did that way better and let's not forget that like everybody is like you know if we want our like asian hero we literally have keanu reeves as well um, right but for me it's like shang chi could have been so much better if the plot literally didn't say go back to china to be a hero that is the plot of Shang-Chi. Yeah. And that fucking bothers me so much. Yeah. Um, and so for me, if I were to see like Twilight, uh, not Twilight, sorry, I'm thinking about Twilight. <laughs> and if I were to see my rush hour, it would not be because I know some folks are going to be like, well, would it be Shang-Chi and, and Black Panther team up? It's not that <laughs> because one half of that is not what I want. Right. Yeah. I think no, I because I I want better representation. Yes, I think you've got to ground these films, and you've got to get, you know, you've got to get essentially like what you were just saying, kind of like an Asian equivalent to Black Panther first, and then you can talk about doing team ups, right? You you know what I think would be a really interesting film to do? It would be a drama, but it would be a period piece set in World War Two. And it would be a black and Chinese soldier in France. Ooh, and I think damn. that would be a really interesting movie because you would, if anybody is Hollywood is listening, I'm down. Um, but man, do yeah, because, because black soldiers and Chinese soldiers faced a lot of prejudice yes. at home and on the war front. Yes. And I think that would be an incredible story to tell. And you would have two soldiers in the same sort of like maybe the same squad and they have to survive. Honestly, here's my pitch. And I've been thinking about this a lot. What would the sequel to Prey be? The sequel to Prey, an incredible mm -hmm. film. Yes. Would be set in World War II. Right. And you have um, a, a predator. Yautja is what they're called in the lore. Um, you would have a predator hunting in france killing nazis and your protagonists are a chinese and black soldier whose squad is wiped out maybe after d-day maybe they're paratroopers and they get separated from their squad and now they have to survive and come together to defeat this alien that is also hunting them and hunting nazis and the nazis are also hunting them there's your sequel to prey yeah so i'm gonna counter pitch you Okay, I want hear it. it not World War II, but because of the context of everything we've talked about, obviously in my mind, Vietnam War. Because a lot of the films we've talked about, obviously the Vietnam War is playing in the background. We are talking about people being sent to fight. Their bodies are resources that we're just kind of throwing to political wants and needs. I think we take that same concept. I want to bring this back to the, the jungle because I love that in Predator. I thought that was a great... So the reason... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. So the reason why I wouldn't pitch the Vietnam War is because that setting is too close to the original Predator sure. in terms of like the jungle, sure. right? Um, that's that's my only reason why I would. So, so, but I love your pitch because you also have the tension of fighting a losing war. You also have the tension of if we make it back home, will people even more? Exactly. Exactly. So here's the here's the here's the fun part. You guys mentioned. Um, that and um, one of my colleagues 
uh, she was one of my mentors through my graduate program. And now uh, one of my colleagues, we co-teach some classes together. And she does a class on uh, the Vietnam War through film. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were having mm-hmm. a discussion last week and this topic came up of Predator because uh, she also does uh, – we're working right now on a um, 80s action cinema course. And uh, oh. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, you know, when you break it down, the original Predator is a Vietnam War movie. 100%. 100%. Yeah, yeah 100% <laughs> is. Yeah, 100%. You're in the jungle. They're fighting this unseen enemy, right? The way they 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 learn to defeat. They just this. didn't want to say it was a Vietnam War. Yeah, movie. no, it, it's totally a Vietnam War movie. So, like, yeah, when when oh. Steve was saying that, I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's why it's that's why it's too close, right? Yeah. Because the reason <laughs> they also didn't want to make it a Vietnam War movie, also because of the '80s, other Vietnam War movies were were coming out. Mm-hmm. But they also around that time there was also the, the big war on drugs. Yes. So that is also in people's well, minds. So it's also this 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 intersection that that's at the time when we're getting these films that are finally um, um, giving uh, Americans the ability to win the war, right? In some way, shape, or fashion, whether it's missing in action or 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 something like that, where we're we're trying to kind of flip this script and and things like that, and 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 being able to beat the predator is kind of a symbolic winning of the Vietnam War. Uh, but I like this, uh, this World War II idea, uh, because I think there's some great fodder there where you could have, um, you know, even have this story where maybe there's like these different elements of, of, of units who kind of get trapped behind enemy lines and stuff like mm-hmm. that and yep. uh, cut off. And, and like you said, and then all of a sudden get embroiled in this, in this, uh, uh, with this new enemy, I, I think, uh, Prey kind of establish this great format, um, and of course with the little um, homage at the end that I won't give away for people to the to the series. Um, that uh, the format for Predator films now, man, I want to see more of these like historical Predator this films. Isn't the, this isn't the first time, yeah. I, I think that like, and another thing about World War II that that I think is important is that we don't get you don't get to see people of color in World War II movies in the spotlight. You don't see them with big roles. You will occasionally see them. But for the most part, people who tell World War II stories are telling the stories of white people. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's how I feel about World War I as well. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, but I think in terms of setting-wise, you could do a lot from a production perspective and a storytelling perspective. You could do a lot more with World War II than you could World War I. You can, I think you can look at – and I think you're, you're absolutely right because and, – and typically when you do get stories, you get stories of people of color of World War II of these kind of very specialized tales, right? So you get movies about the Tuskegee Airmen. You get movies about the Navajo Code Talkers. You don't really get – We were wind talkers. Yeah, yeah. John Woo movie. Yeah, you don't get, <laughs> you don't get these stories of, of – um, the the grunts right the people who were on the ground the only one that like very quickly comes to my mind and there's a few out there the one that first comes to my mind is uh uh go for broke about the 442nd um oh my god yeah um you know the old black and white uh film but the 
the you don't really have too many about the the story of people of color who are like the ones who are actually in the front lines of of a lot of these battles. Supposedly, we're supposed to be getting a movie about the all black 761st uh, tank battalion um, that's supposed to be coming. Uh, uh, that's been kind of in various production points. Uh, I hope they get that made because like, that would be uh, kind of a great uh, little story to tell, but I would love to see something like that. Where, like you said, uh, uh, kind of this intersection, because I think there's some wonderful conversations that goes back to this idea, this wonderful conversations that could be had between um, an African-American and a Chinese American character particularly in this locus of here we are fighting this war for global freedom. Meanwhile, back home, you know, uh, um, or, or even, a, a, you know, uh, uh, you could even have a Japanese American character like involved in there. Right. From, I, I mean, it's the exact same you know, story that you could tell like in Kong Skull Island. That's oh, the story. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The, the beginning of Kong Skull Island. Yes. That's another example of cultural exchange as part of the narrative. Yes. Right. And that dynamic, but I mean, they're initially, you know, enemies and they kind of come together against uh, a common foe, which is the island. Um, but that dynamic is another thing that you could tell. But you could do that in different conflicts. But I think um, World War II is a good one because a lot of folks were like, why are we even fighting this? Yeah. Um, on both sides, right? In if Vietnam War is enough, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to discredit your idea, Steve, because I think it's a, it's a dope idea. I don't idea. feel that way at all. No, um, this is open conversation. Because because you could you could also bring in like the I think personally I just think it would be too close because I was like well, how would you beat the predator during, during the Vietnam War well obviously like that guerrilla warfare tactics were the the thing that won that conflict yes um, and you would just do that it would if for for me it would just feel like a rehash but the political undertones of that story I think would be very very compelling i think what would be interesting there is if you were to get this group of people kind of again cut off right um kind of on their own and then the way to beat the predator is for uh this group of um you know maybe a, a couple of surviving african-american soldiers now have to team up with um these either Viet Cong or north vietnamese soldiers to fight against the predator uh, That'd be cool, um, and 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 I think that would be uh, again this great locus to kind of like flip the script and invert, um, invert the the kind of story now because now the uh, uh, you have these uh, black troops kind of learning these things from these uh, either North Vietnamese or Viet Cong fighters, um, these guerrilla war tactics, right? That essentially is what Arnold is using to defeat the predator in the original film. But now we get yep. this kind of more pure kind of like origin of that. And I think that would be kind of interesting to see. Another interesting one is I wouldn't be mad if they did a modern one, not like the predator, not like the one with Olivia Munn. Mm -hmm. um, but I would love to see, have you folks seen vampires versus the Bronx? Great movie. Yes. Wonderful movie. Yes. Yes. Great movie, right? Yeah. I wouldn't do it as a comedy and I wouldn't have it involving children, but the backdrop of a neighborhood being gentrified and these murders happening would be really interesting, a really interesting way to tell a story about the predator mm -hmm. because you could then bring in issue like contemporary issues like 
you know, the way policing is in America and the overreach of force and the use of these like killings to justify their actions against a marginalized community and the community taking, you know, measures into their own hands, I think could be an interesting story to tell because then you could have other marginalized communities because often these communities are like adjacent to one another. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's a great, uh, another great intersection where you could have, uh, because as you know, in, in cities all across North America, you have these kind of intersections of um, black and Asian communities, right? And and these... these, these Sonia in the chat brought up Attack the Block. Oh gosh, I love that movie. That's it. <laughs> love that yeah, movie. That, that, love that John movie. Boyega. Love it. John Boyega. That... Um, that that um that intersection of those communities i think would be a great place to to tell a story because it is one of those areas that like what we're talking about right now right these intersections of communities it has been engineered by the powers that be um to create tension between mm-hmm. the black and asian communities um so many communities have been shaped by um the idea at, for this long-standing idea where um, Asian proprietors were able to come into black communities and be able to access loans that the people who lived in the black people who lived in those communities could not access. And that built up this tension that like Gook addresses excellently, I think as a film, it's a f- like a phenomenal movie. Um, it's a great indie film. So amazing. It addresses those tensions and part of what was happening um, in the LA riots. And, and I remember those riots keenly because I was in LA when they, uh, when they happened. Um, and, and there was this great tension there because there was this resentment that again was engineered, was built in with the black community saying that like, we don't own any businesses in this community. We don't own any of this. We don't even own the houses we're living in. But we see around us people who are Korean, people who are Chinese able to come in and own these businesses in our communities. And that is, again, that is a, a, a very calculated design that um, the United States and obviously Canada learned from the British Empire. They learned this strategy of divide and conquer to pit different marginalized communities against one another. Because if we're bickering with each other, we're not looking up and we're not seeing we're not paying attention. Yep. We're not seeing, you know, the, the, the source of the oppression for all of us. We're too busy fighting each other. And um, and that is cold, pure calculation. And, and like I said, they learned that from the British, because this is something that the British deployed in India. It's something they deployed in Southeast Asia. They deployed it in Africa, literally all over the world. These are the tactics of a colonizer. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. It is absolute colonizer tactics. Yeah, 100%. And it's, uh, you get the, you get them to defeat each other and you don't even have to, you just kind of stand back. And I think to circle back to, you know, our original topic, and I think that's what made kung fu films so important because they brought these communities together yes right they brought them together in something that you know unified them even though maybe languages weren't the same Mm -hmm. the understanding that hey you know there is this injustice that must be solved by your community yeah cannot trust the government the man the police it's yeah you said that strain they, is is there through all of those, like you said. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's there in all of them, and and that's the thing that I think is missing right now. Yeah, yeah. I think 
I think I, I, I think that's the thing that's missing. Right oh, now. go ahead, Steve. Thanks. Um, so it's connected to like Daniel said earlier on, like there's no like Asian Black Panther moment. And I think what you've said is the reason why I think there isn't one is because everything we've talked about so far, all of the movies that we carry with us that we feel like, uh, you know, uh, brought us value. It talks specifically about power dynamics, like who has power, who doesn't have power. How does power shift and ebb and flow throughout the movie? Black Panther very much is about who has power and who doesn't. And what do you do with that power once you have it? Shang-Chi mm-hmm. does talk about power a little bit, but it just fails to talk about like what you do with that power once you have it. Oh, you fight a dragon. Cool. Here we have an, like, Black Panther, we have right. an imp- empire and we talk about, you know, what do you do with that power once faced with the reality that some people never got that power? What are you going to do now? And that's like, that's the quote, Black Panther moment, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 yep. this entire conversation it excites me because I want to go back to all these films we talked about, especially the ones we did, I, I've never seen. Uh, it's really funny you mentioned The Last Dragon. As soon as I Googled it, I knew exactly the movie it was. I just didn't know by name because like I yeah. the imagery I know it's a great movie. I just don't I've never seen it start to finish. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's 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 why a movie like Ip Man yeah. resonates so deeply with, yes. with folks. More far more so than Shang-Chi, because Shang-Chi is just a movie about you having parent yeah. issues. It's just a movie about you having parent issues. Um but like yeah, I, I want that. Black Panther has these moments that, but also Black Panther has moments that anyone can understand too. Yes, the museum, the museum scene is fucking incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the museum scene is so well written. Also, like Michael B. Jordan himself, he, Michael B. Jordan as like <sighs> a, a a personality, his love of anime mm-hmm. is. It's just everything of everything that he does is just like he embodies what we're talking about right now. Absolutely. In the characters that he plays. That's why we need how he conducts himself. That's why we need the anime episode. Because showing up to an MC movie. Well, well, well that's what we're gonna do. Fucking Saiyan armor. I see that. <laughs> you're doing. Oh yeah. Yeah. He 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 wore Saiyan armor. That that yeah. like I I mean, we have to do a whole episode on anime because we need to talk about Afro Samurai. We oh, need to gosh, talk about yes. Samurai Champloo. <laughs> yes. We have to talk about Samurai Champloo. In a way, we also have to talk about Cowboy Bebop and and then music, right? Um, but we also have to talk about the negative portrayals uh, of black people in anime. Yeah. Right? We have to talk about the caricatures because that's an important part. And I think we also need to talk about um, I think it'd be really... We need to find the guest for this. But we need to... I want to interview someone like a black creator who is making anime, who is making manga, because what does it mean to make anime? Yeah. Um, th- we also need to have Japanese people on the panel as well, mm-hmm. because there are so many different perspectives. There are the perspectives of those who are in Japan. There are perspectives of those who are in the West. There are perspectives of those who are Asian, and there are perspectives of those who are not Asian. And I think the anime topic is actually a far more complex one than the kung fu topic. I think I, I, that's what I that's what I think because I'm like, how do I approach this? I think with the kung fu one, I knew exactly how to approach it. I think I think with with like not only with anime but with Japanese cinema in general, it's very interesting to me when I read 
um, reactions to either Japanese films or American-made films that portray uh, Japan. The reactions, um, as is as is true with a lot of uh, diasporic cultures, the reactions of people who are in the West and those who are in Japan, very different. Yeah, very, very different. different. Very different, and it's the same. And we see that in. Like on TTRPG Twitter and online. Yes. Remember when they announced um, the new, uh, all the different Captain Americas? And they said, hey, there, we have a, a Filipino-American Captain America. And there are some folks who are like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And there are other folks who are like, this person is literally championing, championing the colonizers yep. of our land. Yep. Um, so there are so many different perspectives here to take into account. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an incredible, you know, I think that shows that we need to do more episodes like this. Before we started recording, we were talking about how Asians represent can no longer do the kind of content that we first started doing. We can't just kind of sit down and be like, let's talk about this game because there is more at play. Let's talk about your game, but let's also talk about the social issues that inspire it and why this is an important conversation to talk about, right? Um, If we were just focusing on games or if we were just focusing on reading oriental adventures, we wouldn't have been able to have you, Stefan, on this podcast. Right, right. We wouldn't be, we wouldn't have considered talking about it because like you said, Steve, we've been thinking about doing this episode for a really long time, but just it didn't fit with the content that we were currently doing. And I'm just really happy that we as a team decided, you know what, this is important. We need to do this. And I want to make sure that we continue to do so. Um, so I'm just super grateful, um, Stefan, that you, you joined us to share your knowledge. Thank you. I'm honestly like, I'm honestly just like blown away. Like I, I, I have a tab open on my browser. You get Sue. I'm like, I'm going to watch oh, that. Yeah. So I'm super yeah. curious about let it. Me, like, let me know. I let me know what to. you think once you've seen it. I think I'm going to like it. I mean, I got to rewatch last dragon. There are a lot of movies that I haven't like that. My partner hasn't seen. Yeah. So I want I want to show my partner a lot of these movies. I still haven't gotten her to watch all of Hard Boiled, which is one of oh, my gosh. movies of all Love time. Hard Boiled. Because uh, she, she could, couldn't understand, like, it was just, like, so over the top. Couldn't make it past the, the tea house scene. I was like, this is, this, this is so good. Um, and, and people don't so realize I, how influential, I think, uh, today, uh, John Woo is, right? On, on, oh, on, my like, God, on, yeah. On action cinema as a whole. The Matrix. The Matrix. If you think about it, the Matrix would not exist if not for black exploitation, the kung fu craze, and the Hong Kong blood opera, yeah. which is the genre Absolutely. that John Woo operates. One hundred percent. And and people and the, people don't realize that the Matrix mm-hmm. is uh, is it's so funny that you have like these white supremacists trying to commandeer the Matrix and call you know themselves red the, pills the, and everything. Pills. And I'm like, have oh. you have you looked at the the cast of the matrix have you looked at the makeup of the have you looked at the makeup of zion exactly what are you what are you what are you talking about like jada pickett smith was badass in the matrix and badass in the video game yes. entered the matrix yes she was oh yes she was and right? the video game ghost, ghost. was was, yes. was her ghost later. was amazing oh yes. yeah yeah it's there there we had Oh, the Matrix is like a, a whole other. Episode. I was going to say you could do a whole thing on the um, Matrix. Yeah, <laughs> you could do a whole whole thing on the Matrix because we've talked about like because the Matrix is is a cyberpunk movie in a way, mm-hmm. 
but it's cyberpunk in a way that doesn't appropriate Asian culture. Yes. Uh, you could see that appreciation for Asian culture and its roots. Yes. Um, but yeah, John Woo's influence on literally all modern action cinema is undeniable. Yes. Undeniable. Yes. Um, I could, we could do a whole episode just on John Woo. Yeah. Um, I fucking love John Woo. I have all of his movies on DVD. Um, I, I love his movies so much. Yeah, he's phenomenal. <laughs> um, phenomenal. Yeah, and he, he's uh, he he's just he's done some really interesting stuff. And uh, yeah, if you look at his his like American movies, they're they're different, right? Like Face Off, masterpiece. <laughs> yeah, absolute <laughs> masterpiece of a <sighs> masterpiece of a movie. Yeah, yeah. Mission Impossible Two, uh, right. Uh, but yeah, but broken face a- off, broken arrow, broken, incredible, broken arrow, blackjack. I don't know if you've seen blackjack. Yes, I have. That one's like that one's like you know you know you're a John Woo fan if you've seen blackjack because it's it's an unaired. It was supposed to be a TV pilot, yes. and they made it into a movie. Yes, um, and um, or like you know an interesting one is John Woo made um, Wind Talkers. Yes, he did. Uh, which is like an interesting choice for a Chinese director mm-hmm. to make a movie about Navajo code talkers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's a very interesting uh, director choice, but he was kind of riding that wave at the time. Yes. So, but uh, I think there are a lot of different topics that we could talk about. And I think there are a lot of really interesting intersections that we need to address on this podcast. And I think... You know, the episode that we did with Navarre and this one are both really good examples of the content that I think, Steve, you and I are trying to make now. I think this is the type of content we want people to learn from. Yes. Right. We do Asians represent because we want to have a positive impact on as many communities as possible. Right. Mm -hmm. Because just like we talked about, Asians represent is not content made for Asian people. These are guidelines on how to approach these issues and learn from us. Just like, you know, these movies we've been talking about. Kung Fu Cinema is not just for Chinese people. It's very much also uh, a movie for any marginalized community that faced oppression, uh, has faced injustice, and is looking for, you know, heroic role models. I think... And I don't, I don't know if there's a connection between the two, but you see parallels now with a lot of South Asian cinema too, uh, with like martial arts and South Asian cinema. Yes. Although, I mean, a lot of kung fu and martial arts actually originated in South Asia, so there's like a whole conversation Absolutely. there to talk about. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I think we should do an episode on that too. Um, yeah, there's a lot. Said, there. Actually, we would not be able to do Asians represent if not for our amazing patrons. So. If you folks want detailed show notes on this episode, all of the notes that I, I just, all of the research that I did, all of the references, anything like that, you can find us on Patreon. Uh, if you want to give us a couple bucks a month just to, you know, help us maintain the Discord server that we have, like, let us know. We appreciate all of you. This is hard for me because it's the second time I've done our patron shout out without Marla. Um, but I am super grateful for everyone who's ever helped us past and present keep Asians represent going, uh, particularly our current guardians of the realm, Brooke, Jeremy, Daisy, Arjun, Justin, uh, Wayan, Kavi, Matt, Nami X, Jay. And then of course our most 
honorable patrons. Metalweave Games, congratulations on your recent award. Uh, Valorous Games, I know that Liana has it. There's a huge Valor stream that's happening, and I'm super hyped for that. Um, I think Valor is actually a really, you know what? I've just thought about it. Valor would be a really good system to emulate a lot of the films we were talking about um, with like action and stuff with like iconic, like, like attacks and moves and stuff. It wouldn't be as fantastical, but you could do a lot of these Kung Fu films and these sort of hybrid Kung Fu exploitation films using 100% Valor. Agree. 100% agree. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there's Dungeon Glitch Last Mad and the most honorable times to Epic Impulse and Bob C. Thank you, folks, for your support. We absolutely appreciate you. Um, but that said, Stefan, I have to say thank you for joining us. I I hope this was as positive of an experience for you as it was for me. Uh, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. I you are always welcome on Asians Represent. I I can't wait for us to to just. I hope one day we could just meet in person. Absolutely, and, and have a meal. I I, I, um, I would say this. I would love to have a meal with you guys. I would love to play a game with you one uh, one time. Sit down and play a game with you uh, at one point. Um, thank you. We should try to make that happen. We should. We should try to make that happen. I, I know that there's talk of us trying to do. Um, like a charity stream or a some sort of game in like the fall, I would love to. I think it would be really interesting to try to tell, to do like a spy game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because there, I think it would be really cool to try to do a spy game. Yeah. Um, it could be a modern spy game or it could be a historical one. I actually have this idea for, uh, a spy game that I've wanted to do, like a Mission Impossible esque thing. So I think it'd be really cool. Um, that would be awesome. To, or okay, okay, I'll say this: we could do the behind enemy lines World War Two story. I was waiting for you to pitch it. Yes, sign me up because <laughs> I because because I could do that with Ross really Rifles. Could. Um. Honestly, you know what? I think we should fucking do that. Sign me up. <laughs> like, I think we should I'm, do that. I'm there. I think I want, like, I think we have, like, four, four, four players, like, um, and we tell a story about a group of soldiers who are, you know, trapped behind enemy lines and have to make it out alive. And if this could be a two-parter, it could be a one-parter, we can make it purely historical, or we could put in the fact that there is an alien fucking hunting everyone. Um, I'm there. I think this could be really fucking cool. If we want to do an alien hunting everyone, I'll run 10 candles. 100% I'll run 10 candles. Oh, with 10, uh, 10, here's the thing, 10 candles would be really good if we were in person. Well, that's the thing, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyways, uh, unless we had a camera on the 10 candles. Right. Um, I've made it happen before. We'll talk about it. We we could we could do it like I would I would bend over backwards to try to to try to tell this story. We'll figure out a system. Um, I think we should try to aim to do. You know what would be really cool? We do this in October for like a Halloween sort of season. thing. I think that'd be really neat. That'd be awesome. It'll also give me time to prep. That'd be awesome. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna start workshopping this because I'm uh, I'm kind of I'm really hyped about this. But again, it's time. Stefan, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you for having me, having me on. I, 
I'm so glad we did this. And Steve, I'm 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 glad you're you're back on the podcast. I think I, I missed you on the last one. Um, I'm glad you're also taking time to you know take care of yourself. You know, what? thanks vacation. for giving me space and like time um, just to to do my own thing when I needed it. And you know, I'm back now, feeling great. Um, no, I just what a great episode to come back to, right? For me, <laughs> right? Steve just comes back and it's just like boom, <laughs> awesome episode. Um, but that said. Thank you, everyone. Stay tuned because next Friday, we're actually going to be diving into the one D&D document for Bubble Tea Book Club. And if you want access to the full VOD of that, you have to be a patron. Um, Otherwise, you can catch us live on Friday, last Friday of the month, uh, 7 p.m. Eastern for Bubble Tea Book Club. That said, take care, everyone. Stefan, thank you for joining Steve and I. You You are amazing. Uh, Bye, everyone. We'll see you next time.